Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. One time, Jesus and his followers were traveling through the land, and when they had arrived at Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Matthew 17, 24. That is the introduction of the story of the miracle of the coin in the mouth of the fish. Now we'll get to the rest of the text in just a second. I'm sure most of you are already familiar with this passage, but perhaps you don't know the background. You see, most of us get taught the miracle part, the part where Peter finds the coin just as Jesus said he would. They'll thoroughly cover that because it's a demonstration of the power of Jesus. We seem to love to talk about that stuff because it makes our God bigger than your God. Christianity, it seems, is always working from a defensive posture. It seems like we're always handing someone Jesus' resume as if somebody needs to approve of him before they'll accept him as a reliable religious figure. We've wasted too much time on that over the past 2,000 years. It's time we started talking about the rest of the story. Well, the tribute money that's referred to here is not a tax in the sense that we think of taxes today. They that receive tribute money, as described in Matthew 24, they that received tribute money were not government employees, as most of us have probably assumed. The tribute referred to here in the King James was actually a religious tax, if you will, because it was, at least notionally, collected for the maintenance of the temple. Let's read the whole thing now. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Verse 25, He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. Now, that's a very uncomfortable word. We don't, we don't really say it that way. That really means Jesus anticipated. Jesus knew what Peter was going to say. Again, Jesus was reading someone's thoughts. Jesus knew what Peter was going to say before he spoke it. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? 
Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? And that only means people that are not of their own. What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of those not their own? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers, of those that are not his own. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take, and give unto them for me and thee. Now this is a short story full of great truth. But before we get into the spiritual lessons, let's go over a few of the facts. Now, the good thing is, is, you know, we're together for a whole hour. This program is an hour, at least. Now, you may be thinking, that's, that's not all that special. My church service is an hour, too. Well, around here, we set aside the entire hour for teaching. Even the music we play can teach you something. We don't play much music these days, but when we do play music, it teaches you something. You see, without the obligatory announcements and long song services and summer camp marketing videos and church roof replacement updates, we can get much further into God's Word than most others do during the typical Sunday service hour. It's the same hour. It's how you use it. You see, we take the time to give the details because God's Word is so rich in meaning. So to repeat something I touched on a moment ago so we can go, so we can go into it a little deeper, the tribute money referred to in this passage is not a civil tax, but rather a religious tax. In other words, this isn't the ruling government, and that ruling government at this time being the Roman government. This isn't the Roman government taxing goods or income or property. This money was being collected for the upkeep of the temple. It is similar, I suppose, to what we today would call the building fund. Your church probably has a building fund. That's what this tax was. Now, this distinction, the fact that this is not a government tax, but rather an offering to the temple, is important for your understanding of what this story is teaching us. Remember, you must always remember, the gospel isn't just some journal on what happened in the life of Jesus. This isn't a biography. It isn't a play-by-play -play of the events of his life. The Gospels are meant to teach us important lessons from the kingdom about the kingdom from the events of Jesus' life. Yes, there are events there, but the events that have made its way into the Gospel are meant to teach us something. John, the gospel writer, said it was, would be impossible to write down everything that happened in his life. 
He meant to say that. He said that because he wanted you to know that what is there is telling you something. Listen, we're not just to store these facts away so we can recall them at the next church picnic Bible trivia contest. There are eternal lessons to learn here. This passage about the so-called temple tax is included in the Bible to make a point, several points actually. One more time, this tribute, and I argue that that word tribute is a very poor translation that actually leads to nothing but confusion and misinterpretation. Now, you may have a version of the Bible that does not use that word tribute. But the word tribute does exist in the King James Bible. And the King James Bible was the Bible of the English-speaking church for so long that what was written in the King, Bible, King James Bible is burned into the minds of many church members, pastors, and priests. So that's why we have to go over when the King James gets something wrong. They got it wrong when they used the word tribute. The original word in the Greek is simply a reference to a particular amount of currency. It's that simple. I mean, we could translate this into modern language by saying something like, hey, does your master pay the 50 bucks? That's what it is in essence saying. Of course, it isn't saying 50 bucks. You get the point. The Greek word that gets used is didrachman, which simply means a double drachma. Didrachman, double drachma. Does your master pay the double drachma? Now, if you've been with us before, you know that a drachma is an amount of money. A didrachman is more or less the name of a coin with the value of two drachmas. You know what a dime is, right? A dime represents 10 pennies. It is the value of 10 pennies. A didrachma is a coin that represents the value of two drachmas. A didrachman is the name of the coin that represents the value of two, digra two drachmas, two drachmas, which in the Bible, a drachma, or two drachmas, I should say, two drachmas is equal to a half shekel. Now, a I'm hoping that that amount of money, a half shekel, is familiar to you regulars. We're talking about the temple, and we're talking about a half shekel. That should immediately come to your mind. Because you know, you regulars, that the silver half shekel is the redemption money we've spoken of in the past. Now, no time to go into any further detail on that, but just realize that those that receive, that's what they were called in Matthew 7, 14, those that receive were those that receive this very specific amount of didrachman, which is equal in value to a half shekel. That's what they were there collecting. 
In fact, a didrachmon is so specific that when it was mentioned to Peter, he knew that it didn't just mean a half shekel. He knew it meant the temple tax. He interpreted that to mean the temple tax. Peter didn't say, well, what do you mean? He said he just answered the question. But we, 2,000 years later, in a culture completely unaware of the ancient Jewish customs, we need a little help. We need a little help in understanding what this was. Did drachman doesn't mean anything to us, but I suppose tribute does. And that's why it was used by the King James translators. But unfortunately, it is less help than they would have liked it to be. Tribute gets confused sometimes with the imposition of a governmental demand for money. That is not what is meant in Matthew's gospel. Now, you may be thinking, why do we spend so much time on these things? Why are we spending so much time on this stupid amount of money? Because I don't want you to fall for it when somebody says that the Bible is just some collection of stories. It most certainly is not just anything. The Bible is the complete, as as far as we're concerned, complete as it applies to mankind. The Bible is the complete, all interrelated word of God And you can only really come to that conclusion if you spend some time studying it. If you read out of your King James about the tribute money, you would think that perhaps Caesar imposed the tribute money. And you would completely miss the point. That's why you have to study it. So just to get us back on track, Matthew 17, 24, again. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Now this passage is a reference to the redemption money given by adult males of a certain age for the maintenance of the temple. We know that by the amount of money that's represented in the drachman. That's why it is also sometimes referred to as the temple tax. Some versions of the English Bible actually call it that. Now, that's the temple tax. By the way, the temple tax was really an offering that was in addition to the required tithes. Now, this is where it kind of gets interesting. There is no question that the tithes were required by God's law. No time to get into that with Scripture. Take my word for it. The whole nation of Israel was required to tithe. More than one, tithes. However, since the imposition of this temple tax, it has been argued among the Jews as to whether or not it too was mandatory. I mean, there is definite 
scriptural authority for collecting it. Exodus 30, starting at verse 11. And the Lord said, un, spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This shall this they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary, and half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. That is the authority for collecting the didrachman, the half shekel. That's the scriptural reference that validates the so-called temple tax. But the question had always arisen. Did God intend the temple tax to be obligatory in perpetuity? Were they to always take this tax? Was it to be collected every year? That part is not clear. That has been debated. That was debated. Believe me, if there's one thing that gets debated more than any other in Scripture, that's giving. Everyone, all of the sudden, becomes an expert on biblical exegesis when it comes to the collection. Everyone will argue with you when it comes to the collection. Everyone is all of the sudden able to quote Bible verses in support of their argument on giving on both sides. Eternal soul? Not so much. Love thy neighbor? Not so much. Gifts of the Spirit? Can't be bothered. Giving, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's on. Nothing gets the congregation speaking in tongues faster than bringing up the collection. Now, it is my opinion that Scripture makes clear, especially here in Matthew, that this tax, this collection by Jesus' time was less mandatory and more expect it, if that makes sense. And we can see that by the manner in which the question to Peter was worded. Verse 24 again, Doth not your master pay tribute? It sounds like a choice is possible, which according to scholars, it was. By this time, no one seems to have been forced to give this collection. Of course, in the past, Jesus had shown some contempt for the practices that had gone on in the temple in his day. You remember when he threw out the money changers? Well, it appears that the spirit of the question to Peter was whether Jesus was going to support this. It seemed more like it was half sarcastic and half inquisitive. That's what they wanted to know. They knew Peter was a follower of Jesus. They knew that Jesus had shown some disdain for the way they ran the temple. Was he going to turn over their tables too? Basically was sort of the question. They weren't blatantly accusing Jesus of disobedience to commandment of God, but rather they were inquiring as to where he stood on this somewhat murky matter. Again, Bible experts tell us that although the temple tax may not have been overtly compulsory, most Jews participated, if for no other reason, to demonstrate their piety, much like 
many givers today do, much like many givers have in the past. They don't give out of love for God. They give out of the desire to for you to see them give. You sound like you're in a bad mood today, John. I'm not. But giving does get me riled up at times. And giving, by the way, is not our topic for today. It's just difficult for me to go over this subject without doing a little bit forcefully. Now, this next part is one of the most critical passages in all of the Gospels. It means as much to Christians as any other on so many levels. And I think its impact would not have been fully comprehended by you if I hadn't spent the first 26 minutes of this program talking about whether or not it was a government tax and a temple tax. That's why this is so important. You see, Jesus says something here that reveals to us his full understanding of his own true nature. Now, this is important, so listen. And when they were and when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. Jesus anticipated what he was going to ask, what he was going to say. And Jesus said to him, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or, or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Now, as is sometimes the case, the old style of English here is sort of difficult to understand. Let me try to paraphrase once again in more modern English. Jesus asks Peter, when a king imposes some sort of financial obligation, does he expect it from his subjects or, f or his children? Are the citizens or the princes under that obligation? That's what Jesus' question was about. Does this apply to the Son of God or does this apply to the citizens of the kingdom? It's an important question. And I'm sure Peter wished all of Jesus' questions were like this, easy like this. It's like when the bridge keeper asked Lancelot his favorite color in order to cross that bridge. Peter, though not recorded here, must have said, that's easy. What the record does tell us is that Peter correctly answered, Taxes are not paid by the king's kids, but rather paid by those that serve the king. Correct. Jesus therefore says, then are the children free. Therefore the sons are free is what he means. Now you may ask yourself, so what? So why is that so significant? Well, that tax, one more time, was for the temple. The temple is God's house. It's his palace. In ancient times, a king would impose the financial burden of building his castles on the citizens that serve him. If the king needed a castle built, he went out and extracted money from the citizens. 
to build his castle. But he didn't take the money from his children. The children were not expected to pay for the building and maintenance of the castle. If you're a true Christian, then it is your declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, He is divine. The Son of God is God, right? True Christians, and this is the point I want to make, one of the points. True Christians worship Jesus because He's divine. Well, the critics, and this is why we're going over this portion of the story, the critics, which include entire denominations that identify as Christians, say that Jesus is not divine because he never claimed to be. The criticism is, you can't say Jesus is God because he never said he was. He never said, I am God. Well, what do you think he's saying here? In answer to the receivers regarding paying for the upkeep of the house of God. He's saying, I don't have to pay tribute to my own home. I'm the son of God. This reveals how he felt about himself and how you should feel about him, by the way. He's God. He's exempt from paying for the upkeep of his own home. He said he was free. Jesus considers the children free, as he put it, because he's God's child. The nature of the parents is passed on the children, right? Onto the children. Biology 101. God is divine. Therefore, his children who share his nature are divine. Jesus is divine, and he knows it, and he claims it here. Make sense? Good. But that's not our lesson for today. We'll get into that in a minute. Then Jesus says something else very illustrative of his view. Verse 27, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, give them for me and thee. Now, I know I skipped over the miracle. We'll get to that in a minute, too. I want to point out something else first. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, give unto them for me and thee. Sorry, my friends. I'm not really sorry. Jesus is here showing his open support for giving. Even voluntary giving. One more time. This is a religious tax, a religious offering, a religious collection. Whatever you want to call it, Jesus is saying, do it. He could have claimed an exemption, which he could have done easily if he did not believe in the concept of the congregation supporting the work of the church, as some claim. As opponents to the giving in churches claim, it is not their responsibility to keep the church going. 
Jesus appears to disagree. In fact, it goes deeper than that. Now, this is not today's message either. I'm just pointing out a few of the important lessons found in this short story from the gospel. Do you see the word offend there in verse 27? Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, give unto them for me and thee. See that word? Now, this is extremely important. So please pay attention. It's clear that Jesus is not against the collection of the temple tax. He may have pointed to his own exemption from it, but he does not argue about the validity of the collection. Listen, if Jesus is against something, he says it, especially if it involves the kingdom. It's never unclear how the Lord feels about something. If Jesus were against this offering, he would have said so. Instead, he told Peter to go ahead and pay it. Otherwise, he says, they risked offending. That needs some explanation. Now, we use the word offend. The word in the King James is offend. We use that word offend in a completely different way, and this is why we once again need to spend a little bit of time. Today, we use the word offend to mean more or less to hurt someone's feelings or sensitivities. In fact, we do a lot of that, unfortunately, these days, apparently. We don't, for instance, point out when someone has put on a few pounds over the holidays because we don't want to offend. That is, we don't want to insult. If someone's suit looks like they slept in it, we would keep our opinions to ourselves for fear of offending. You get it. You know how we use the word offend. Well, in verse 27 of Matthew 17, the English word offend is translating the Greek word skandalizo. And skandalizo means, listen to this, listen closely, to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. That's straight from Strong's Greek Dictionary. Scandalizo, the word that gets translated into the English word offend, means to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. That's why we actually get our word scandal from scandalizo. And we apply it to politicians and government officials so often. Because it is when someone causes us to distrust and desert those that we trust and obey. That is one of the definitions of scandalizo and why we use the word scandal from it. But scandalizo also means to trip up or to trap. And in this case, here in Matthew 20, Matthew 17, verse 27, we actually see both definitions. 
to cause a person to begin to distrust or desert one whom he ought to trust and obey and to trip up and trap. The word carries with it the meaning, listen to me, of enticing someone to sin. Again, I say this is very important for you to understand. Jesus did not withhold giving, though he was free to do so, because that would have caused scandalizo. Lest we offend, lest we scandalizo, lest we entice someone else to sin, let's give. Jesus did not want anyone that trusted his opinion to come to the conclusion by way of his actions that this temple tax was bad. That would have caused scandal unintentionally. He could have withheld giving. He could have said, tell them, forget it. But in his opinion, and his opinion is the only opinion you should care about, in his opinion, that would have called, caused scandalizo. Don't you find that interesting? If Jesus refused to give this collection, to this collection, again, as we said it was his right to do, it could have given the unintended impression to others that giving to the temple could be avoided. And listen, such an impression would have been sinful for others to come to. Jesus did not want his actions to cause others to stumble. At this point in his ministry, listen to me closely. At this point in his ministry, it was not yet fully revealed that he was the Son of God. He knew it himself, but it was still not apparent to the world outside, even to his own apostles. It was still not clear. And he did not want to take the risk of having to explain to someone the reason why he didn't give was because he was the Son of God. That would have tripped up his mission. Therefore, he said, to avoid scandal, let's give. There's nothing wrong with not giving for me, but there's something wrong of not giving for you. And if you think you and I are on the same plane, I don't want to take that risk. Let's go ahead and give. Jesus did not want his actions to cause others to stumble. Not giving would be scandalizo, a stumbling block. Cause others to conclude wrongly that they didn't have to give. Not giving would fall short of God's ideal. Put another way, sinful. You got it? Not giving would not have been sinful for him. But for others, it would have been. Jesus is telling us that giving to the house of God is good and not giving is not good, is 
a stumbling block, is a sin. We are to be givers. Now, one more quick lesson from this story. We have said repeatedly already that Jesus did something that he was free to avoid. In this story, Jesus did something that he could have chosen to avoid. He went through something he gave of himself, though he didn't have to. Is that familiar? Sound familiar? Don't you get the impression that God is always telling the same story? I mean, it must be a pretty important story if God can hardly go a few pages without telling it. And the story is, the story that keeps getting told over and over is that someone else will pay an obligation who does not owe it for someone who does but can't. You see, Peter was a very successful fisherman. He was a very successful fish businessman. Plenty of money, had a house, had boats. Everything that a comfortable, I wouldn't say wealthy, but comfortable man would in the time of ancient Israel. And he gave all that up, all of it. And now he was broke. He could not pay the temple tax. He wasn't probably under any obligation, but Peter was a pious Jew, and he felt the obligation in his heart to, to give. He felt obligated to give. And they, he was pressed by those that received. But he couldn't do it. He went to Jesus. And told him about it. the story of the miracle of the coin in the mouth of the fish is about a person paying the debt for someone else. Isn't, isn't that the story of the gospel? Jesus paid for us what we are not able to pay ourselves. Peter needed that miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth because he personally didn't have what it took to satisfy the one collecting the debt. Did you catch that? Jesus took upon himself the payment that his follower could not provide. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom and tribute? Of their own children or of the strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take, and give unto them for me and thee. I've come to love this story more than I can actually say to you. 
you see what strikes me about this, besides what we've already spoken of? It's two things. First of all, this is really one of the most amazing of all Jesus' miracles. I mean, this is one of those miracles that if you were to tell it to one of your polite, non-believing friends, I have a few polite, non-believing friends that I talk to Jesus about. Well, this is one of those stories that those polite, non-believing friends would have no rationalizing explanation for. Your polite, non-believer friend would only have two choices with regard to this miracle. Number one, the story is true and Jesus did perform miracles. Or two, this is a lie. You know, some of those other miracles you can perhaps explain away. The calming of the storm, for example, maybe that was just a just really good timing. Your non-believing friend, your polite non-believing friend would say, well, is it possible that Jesus just saw a break in the clouds that the others were too panicky to notice? And he just said to them, hey, guys, don't worry. It's going to clear up in a second. Rather than what they thought he said, which was peace, be still. Isn't that possible, believing friend? I don't know, non-believing friend. Same sort of discussion could go on about the feeding of the 5,000. Your non-believing, polite friend would say, well, maybe somebody bought more food than Jesus thought they did. Maybe they were out there handing food around and, and Jesus just didn't know about it. I don't know, polite, non-believing friend. I suppose, what about the raising of Lazarus? Maybe he wasn't actually dead. Maybe he was in a coma or some other death-like state. I mean, non-believing, polite friends can come up with all sorts of explanation for Jesus' miracles without having to call the gospel writers liars. Right? They can just pat those gospel writers on the head as if they're writing out of some primitive, over-imaginative mind, unlike, of course, we modern, brilliant people have. But you can't be polite about this miracle if you don't believe it. If you don't believe this story, then someone is lying. There is no misinterpretation possible. Jesus sent Peter to find a fish with a coin in its mouth. And actually, and this makes me laugh a bit, Jesus said, the first one you pull up will have a coin in its mouth. Peter didn't have to fish all day to find this prize. One fish, one coin. And he called it all. Now, the reason I laugh it's because there's just no way to get this lucky by guessing. Jesus could not have guessed this would happen. First, first fish has a coin? But that's not even the amazing part. The English phrase, piece of money, that we see there in Matthew 17 does not do this story any justice, much like the word tribute did earlier. 
The translators here, when they use this word piece of money, robbed us of the miracle when they use that phrase. The original word that gets translated to piece of money is the Greek word stator, which is actually referring to Roman silver coin worth four drachmas. Now, again, this is amazing to me. A stator, again, is a silver coin worth four drachmas. Four drachmas, if you're doing your math quickly, from our earlier conversation, four drachmas equals one shekel. The temple tax, remember that, was how much? A half shekel of silver. The piece of money wasn't just a piece of money. It was a stator. That's the miracle report. That was from the original report of the miracle. It wasn't just a bag of coins worth a certain amount of money. It wasn't even a piece of money. It was the right piece of money. In the first fish, on the first try. Jesus did as he promised to do with absolute precision. This is why you hear about this part, because it is so amazing. And we kind of, in church, we kind of gloss over the rest of it. I, I'm going to give this part its due respect because it really is a miracle. Or a lie. Next time my polite, non-believing friend wants to pat me on the head, I'm going to say, you're calling Jesus a liar. Most people are not willing to call Jesus a liar. A stator was found in the first fish. A stator is worth four drachmas. Four drachmas equals one shekel, and it's silver. Jesus provided for me and thee. Those were his words to Peter. I will provide for me and thee. Me plus thee equals two. Two halves of a shekel. Two half shekels is one shekel. What was that one coin worth found in the mouth of the fish? One shekel. The price for two people is one whole silver shekel. Four drachmas. The exact price was paid. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. I, I can't help but to say praise Jesus because I can't help it. This is an unquestionable miracle. Or it's a lie. Now the other thing that strikes me about this passage from the Gospels, and this, by the way, is why I decided to teach this lesson. When I sat down to write this lesson, this was why all of the other stuff... <laughs> came with it. I know we're 53 minutes in and I'm just getting to the lesson. But someone needs to hear this. I certainly do from time to time. 
what strikes me about this passage is how personal it is. Yes, the miracle demonstrates the power of Jesus over nature. But that isn't always comforting to a lonely, seeking, pleading, helpless, broken heart. Knowing power is available isn't as comforting as knowing power is available for me. This is one of a very few private miracles, and by that I mean a miracle experienced in private. Most of Jesus' other miracles were performed in front of crowds, sometimes huge crowds. This one was witnessed by one person, Peter. What's your point? You and I never stand alone. And you and I mean something to Jesus personally. He's decided to care about your cares, John Tomasi. He's decided to care about your cares, Barbara. Your cares, Joshua. Your cares, Samantha. Nora. Tina. Kim. Julie. You and I aren't just members of a congregation or a prayer group or a Bible study gathering or a denomination or a race. We are the personal friends of the King. And He knows what I'm facing as an individual. And he wants to help. I know he has the power. That's never a question. But does he have the desire? Jesus always wants to help me. Even if he doesn't have to. And let's face it, he never has to. That's what makes it so wonderful. Jesus has never been, nor will he ever be, under any obligation to help anyone, but he does so because it's his nature to do so. He went about healing the sick because it's his nature. He went about giving sight to the blind because it's his nature. He didn't do those things. He doesn't do for you to prove anything to anyone. He doesn't need to prove anyone to anyone that he's the Messiah. When he rose, his resurrection proved that. He does for you because that's the kind of guy he is. 
Now I want to go back to the money for a second. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. I call this a miracle of singularity. There is only one sea, one hook, one fish, one fish's mouth, and one piece of money. All in the singular. The sea, a hook, the fish, his mouth, a piece of money. Therefore, the purpose of this discovery, this miracle, must also be singular. He said, give unto them for me and thee. Well, me and thee is not two. It's one. There is only one coin. There is only one offering. The me and thee is one. It's more like me plus thee. What was offered covered a whole. You know, Jesus is never shy about going in with us. He once said, take my yoke upon you. Now, as this country goes for, grows further and further distant from its agricultural roots, certain words lose their meaning in our everyday common lexicon. Do you know what a yoke is? And I don't mean what you find in an egg. What Jesus was referring to, what the King James called a yoke, is a device that's found on farms. And it has the purpose of tethering two oxen or some other beast of burden together. That way, the two work as one. They're not kind of one. They're not like one. They are one. When the yoke is taken. The temple tax, the offering, was a silver half-shekel. The expected way of payment for two people would have been one half-shekel coin for me and one half-shekel coin for thee. Two silver coins, adding up to the expected amount for two males over 20 years of age. In fact, I guarantee you, if that was how the story ended up, you and I would have never known the difference. Most of the rest of the story would have come out the same way. If Peter opened that fish's mouth and found two coins, or if Jesus told Peter to pull up two fish, and there was a coin each fish's mouth, we would have thought, well, that's perfectly acceptable and normal, and never thought anything differently. But that isn't what happened. Why? Why the one sea, the one hook, the one fish, the one coin? Why? Well, I blame Jesus' nature again. Just like it's his nature to be a help, it's his nature to want us to be yoked to him. He is simply incapable of 
tolerating the thought that you and I and he are more than one. Listen, in the true Lord's Prayer, the one in the garden that night, why do you think we go to communion so much? We want to be yoked with him in his suffering. Remember the prayer in the garden? The true Lord's Prayer? This is what he prayed for. John 17, 21. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. Listen to this. That they also may be one in us. It's absolute nonsense outside of its spiritual meaning. How could the Father, the Son, and all the rest of us be one? It's not nonsense. Our unity in Christ is activated once we give up our oneness, our individual oneness. When we turn our life over to him, he places us in that yoke permanently. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Who shall? We know it's not going to be God, and he's powerful over all of those things. He's power over tribulation, over distress, over persecution, over famine, over nakedness, over peril, over sword. So even if those things had the power to do it, God would never allow it. We will not be separated from the love of Christ. Listen, this lesson is to try to get across to you lonely Christians out there that you aren't ever alone. The minute you give your life to Christ, you are yoked with him. Take my yoke upon you is your personal invitation to salvation. You and Jesus yoked together, crossing the gates of heaven. And listen to me. Yokes are not made for herds. Yokes are not made for congregations or nations or groups. Yokes are made for two individuals. Two. You and Jesus. Then once the two of you are... Now listen to this, because this is great. The minute the two of you are in that yoke together... There is nothing you can do that doesn't involve the two of you. Do you hear me? You couldn't get out of that yoke if you tried. Usually the smartest, strongest ox controls the speed and direction of the motion, and you aren't the strongest of the two. Where he wants you to go, you're going to go. I know. I do it myself. You're going to want to squirm. You're on a turn. You're going to try to fight that speed and direction. You're even going to think that that pasture over there is where I should be. We should be over there plowing the field. But the strongest ox says, uh-uh. Just stay with me. 
We're heading over this way. You see, when you're yoked together, he's going to feel every move you make. He feels it when your motion is contrary to his. Now, eventually that's going to comfort you or you're going to spend the rest of your life in conflict. And there's no peace in conflict. Conflict and peace are opposite conditions. Jesus not only lowered himself to avoid tripping others up, that in itself shows how deep his love for mankind as a whole is. But not only did he agree to be taxed, he made sure he didn't leave his friend behind in the process. He provided for Peter. Believe me, I know it's easy to feel lost in the crowd. It's easy to feel lonely while among others. Well, you aren't just one of many. You're also one. And Jesus wants you to know that. I'm convinced that Jesus thought of John Tomasi when he was dying on that cross. I'm convinced. I don't know how, but I believe in heaven. Jesus and I are going to have a personal relationship. I'm counting on that. I mean, we do here. Again, I, I don't know how. But he knows what I'm going through. I know that because he helps, and I mean that. He seems to know exactly what to provide when I need it most. I may not feel like it at the moment. I may feel like my neck is breaking as he's pulling that yoke in the direction he says we need to go. But eventually, that pasture he leads me to is the sweetest of all. Just let it happen. Accept his help. Accept his yoke upon you. He knows you. He calls you. And he wants to help as only he can. Change the direction and motion of your life to his because that's what he wants for you. To Jesus, it's always me and thee. Let that strengthen you. Let that comfort you. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.